We know that we belong to you no matter what happens in this life. We just thank you so much, Father, for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you're going to do. Be with us the rest of this morning and focus our hearts and our minds on you. I'll pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. morning hope everyone is well this morning i tell you when you when you get into places of worship like we just experienced you just don't want to quit do you i luke i didn't want you to stop i wanted you to keep on going a few more a few more rounds of of oceans man that was just great thank you for doing that thank you for leading us in that um i decided to change gears this morning a little bit i know that there are a lot of people who are out of town and so about midway through uh the week last week my wife was talking to me and we were discussing about her going out of town for the walk to emmaus and it dawned on me that there were going to be several people that were not going to be here and uh the the upreach inreach outreach sermon to me that's a family sermon series and i wanted to make sure that we're all here for that we've only got about two more left and we're going to wrap up that series so this morning I decided to change gears just a little bit, um, and, and I, wanna, I want to say a special prayer for the ones that are on the walk uh, here in just a moment, but I also wanted to just, just let you know I'm, I'm switching gears because I, I decided to pause this sermon series because um, um, when I realized that, that I wasn't going to be doing the series that I've been doing, there's another message that God has been had, that he's had on my heart for at least six weeks and I thought, man, this is the perfect time just to go ahead and share this, this message, and then we'll save the other one for, for next week when everybody's back home, okay? Um, but, you know, one of the greatest treasures we have in all the Bibles, in all of our Bibles, excuse me, is the Psalms. Um, it is the songbook of the first century church. It is the songbook of God's people in the Old Testament. Um, and, and ever since I moved here uh, to Snyder, there has been one psalm that has been on my heart every night. And that is simply because I grew up in Nashville, which is, a, you know, as you know, a really, really big city. And the, the light pollution there is so much so that when you go out at night, you might see six, seven, eight stars max, right? You're not going to see much. Um, but here, oh my goodness, like you all probably take it for granted sometimes, but, but go outside at night. And just look up at the sky. Amen. I mean, Snyder has it, man. It's like a, it's like a, a planetarium show every single night when I go outside and, and I take the dogs out to go to the you know, bathroom, whatever. I just stand there and I look at it and I can't help but remember Psalm 19. The heavens do what? Declare the glory of God. So I want to talk a little bit about that um, this morning. But before we do, let's take a moment and pray for those who are on that walk. And because uh, they're going to be coming, coming back tonight. My wife's one of those. So let's pray for them as, as we uh, start this morning. Father, I thank you so much for everything that you do for us. I thank you for the, the song that was sung a moment ago that reminds us that your love for us and the relationship that you invite us into is like oceans deep. Um, it's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. We cannot help, Father, but just relax and let go and just surrender to who you are 
And so, Father, we come before your presence. We, we ask you to, to, to bless and be with the women who are on that walk um, right now. Lord, I know that it has been an incredible spiritual journey for them, for my wife, um, for all who have been a part of it. And God, I just pray that you would um, just continue to make your presence known and felt um, there. I pray for transformation to take place in the lives of, of, of all that are part of it. And be with us throughout the rest of this day. Help us to go into your word, to understand your word. Help us to have the mind of Christ when it comes to these things so that we don't just read words on a page, but that we take them to heart and we seek as disciples to live them out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, this morning I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles. Turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms. And uh, if you would, let's go to, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Now, as you're turning over there, just to give you a little bit of background, this extraordinary little psalm of David was written about 3,000 years ago. And to me, when you really sit down, when you really take time to uh, meditate over what this psalm is saying and, and what it's calling us to understand, I think that what it demonstrates for us is that David was um, not a simple guy at all. Um, he was an incredible warrior. He was an incredible leader. Um, but the other thing about David is that he was, he was also an incredible poet. Um, he was an incredible theologian. And what you see as you read through Psalm 19 is, is, is just how much he loves the Lord, how much he loves and adores the Word of God, and how much he, he sees God literally everywhere he looks. And that, to me, I think is what's so significant about uh, David. David, with all of his flaws, with all of his character issues, with all the things that David did in his life that, that you can look at and say, man, that was horrible, that was wrong. What made him a man after God's own heart is that when he was wrong, he would admit he was wrong. And when it came to his relationship with God, he knew that there was God and he saw God in everything. And everywhere he looked, he could see um, the signature of his creator. And as you're going to see as you get into this psalm, it has a very high view of God. Um, it's some of the most majestic poetry, I think, in all of Scripture. Um, it's very well written. And it begins by telling us, believe it or not, it begins by telling us that whenever you look up and you see the sun and the moon and the stars, the Bible tells us that God is speaking to you through those things. Now, did you realize that? And we could sit up here and we could talk about God speaking. That's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. But one of the ways in which God speaks, there's all kinds. God speaks to us through Scripture. He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through other people, through circumstances, through sermons, through whatever. But one of the ways that He speaks to us is through the heavens. The Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, to every one of us, we would say amen. But the question that I would want to ask is, well, what are they saying? Right? What are they saying to us? And, and if we can interpret what they're trying to tell us, then, then perhaps maybe it will give us something that we need. And I think that's what David's doing here. He's, he's going to give us some, some information about what the heavens are declaring to us. And he's going to do that through Psalm 19 in a very unique way that I think is going to communicate a message that's going to be a blessing to all of us. Um, interestingly... Let's talk about this for a moment. David was surrounded by nations that actually worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. Uh, you know, you think about 
for example, in the ancient um, peoples, one of the things that they would do is they would offer what they called the kiss to heaven. And uh, this was very, very popular among pagans. And so basically it's a, a way of homage. You would just say, kiss to the sun as, as your, your creator, or kiss to the stars or whatever. By the way, that's what the word worship means. It means to kiss the hand toward. You realize that? So when we're doing our worship, we're not worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. We're worshiping the one who made the sun and the moon and the stars, right? So we're kissing the hand toward the father, right? But, but there were a lot of people back then that worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars. And you say, well, that sounds really strange. Why would you worship the sun and the moon and the stars? Well, it's still done today. Uh, I know, uh, Lane, uh, you and Andy, you guys, was it India that y'all went to? Okay. Um, I read, I, I remember this. This was some years back. But um, there was a, what was it? It was a worship gathering in, okay, let me, let me, let me get this down. Uh, 3,000 years later, you've got in 2021 in India, you have what's called the Kumbh Mela Festival. And it's held every 12 years. And basically, it's four festivals that's held in a cycle of every 12 years. And basically, the whole thing has to do with the sun and the moon and the stars. And so what they believe is that every 12 years, there is a perfect alignment in the sun and the moon and the stars. And when this alignment happens, it has something to do with the, the myth uh, of, of their ancestors' belief system. But they believe that when the sun and the moon and stars align just perfectly, the water, the Ganges River, becomes holy. And that's when you see this big festival where Indians will all go down and they will, they will jump in the water and they'll celebrate and, and that whole thing. I remember some year back, um, the Hindus, they had this, this celebration. And I think it was the last one. They only had about 10 million people there because of COVID. It was, it was in 2021. Um, but the one that they had before that attracted 30 million people. 30 million people. Now, think about that. 30 million people worshiping essentially the sun and the moon and the stars in that moment. I, I just find that fascinating. And, and one of the things that missionaries have to watch out for is they have to be careful when the festival is going on because emotions among the Hindus are so strong that, that Christians will actually tell you that during the time of the celebrations, they actually stay in their homes. They don't want to go out because attacks can happen, harassment happens, and, and that type of thing. Now, it's different here, isn't it? In the, in the secular West, here people look at the cosmos. We go outside, we look at, um, we see the stars, the sun and the moon and stars. And what do people here in the West tend to say? We don't worship those things. We don't believe that those are gods. But what we'll, we'll say, aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky that, that, that all of this just, what? Just happened by accident, right? It's just a, a natural thing. Aren't we lucky to be surrounded by, by such beauty? And they think that all the glory that surrounds us is there by chance. Well, isn't it ironic um, that, that secularism, even though it might tell you we do not believe in God, if you think about it, there's not a lot of consistency there with people who say they don't believe in God. Because one of the things that I've realized with people who say they don't believe in God is that they still try to find something to, to guide their life. Let me give an example. Um, according to a 2018 Pew report, 29% of Americans believe in astrology and horoscopes. 29% of Americans 
believe in astrology and horoscopes. Now, this figure is skewed with Christians, so I don't know if this is including them or not including them or whatever, but some 30% of Americans believe in astrology and horoscopes. What is astrology and horoscopes? That's looking to the stars to order your life, right? I remember when I was growing up, man, my grandma, a lot of my family was really into that stuff, you know? And so every single day they'd read the horoscope. And some of them actually believed that that kind of gave them a guide for their life that day, right? But, but again, you think, well, 30% of Americans, that's not much. Well, think about it. I mean, 32% of Americans, that's like, what, 85, 100 million people, right? 100 million people in America, in the West, look to the stars, not God, but look to the stars to order their life and to give them meaning for their life. Now, Christians, do we look at the sun and the moon and stars? Yes, we do. But when Christians look at the sun and the moon and the stars, we don't look at them as if they are our creators. We look at them as one of the most awesome aspects of God's creation. And so when we look at the sun and the moon and the stars, we don't look to them. We look to the one that made them. We look to the God who put those things there for a reason. And David says, don't you miss that fact that those things are there for a reason. And they are trying to communicate something very, very important to you. So what are they saying? Now, one of the things I want to point out before we get into this psalm is that there seems to be three divisions that happen in this psalm. And I want you to watch this very carefully. Because in theological schools, and you read a lot of commentaries, um, a lot of scholars don't believe that this is one psalm. They believe that this is actually three psalms that over the course of several thousand years was spliced together. That each of these three sections don't have meaning that they're connected. Does that make sense? They don't have anything to do with one another. I don't hold that view, and I'll share with you why in just a moment. But let me lay this out, and then we're going to go through the text, okay? Three divisions. The first division occurs in verses 1 through 6, where David talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. That's the very famous passage that we all know very well. And you have this, this language about the creation bringing honor and praise to God. That's the key thing there. The creation does what? What is its purpose? It was designed by God to bring him honor and praise. Remember that. Designed by God to bring him honor and praise. Now, the second division occurs right after that in verses 7 through 11. And there's a shift that takes place. He goes from talking about the the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens and then he shifts the subject and he begins start, he starts talking about the law of the Lord and, and how the law brings glory and honor to God because it's the revelation of God. It's the very will of God. It's the words of God. Okay? And then the third division occurs yet again in verses 12 through 14. And then you have a third shift happens. You have another subject. And the psalmist at this point basically is praying for uh, a pure life. Now, if you just read this psalm very casually, very quickly, you might agree, right? What does one have to do with the other? What does the heavens declaring the glory of God have to do with the law uh, bringing glory to God and, and, and then him praying for your pure life? It, it, it may not sound like it's connected. And, and the reason why I think this is, the reason why I don't think that they see the connectedness in these three sections of the psalm is because they're missing the point of what David is actually trying to say. I think there's a context here, and I'm going to kind of walk it through with you, and I want to see if by the time we get to the end of the sermon, if maybe you agree with me that, that, that David is trying to communicate something very interesting here. So let's dig a little bit deeper, 
this morning, and let's, let's find out what connects the dots. What is God saying in Psalm 19? Look at verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no I would even say actual speech. It's not, in the, it's not in the Hebrew, but it's the idea. There's no actual words, okay, is what he's saying. There's no actual words that you can hear with your ears. Their voice is not actually heard. I'm putting the word actually in there. Their line or their plumb line or their voice, depends on your translation, has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, so here's the question. How do the heavens proclaim the glory of God? Here's the answer. How do they not? Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be facetious, but but that's the idea, I think, in the text here. How do they not? Because think about it like this. They have been created. The sun and the moon and the stars have been created by God to fulfill a certain purpose. Yes or no? Okay? In a sense, do the heavens obey the law of God? They do. Because the heavens obey the laws of physics. Who created the laws of physics? Did man? No, we didn't create the laws of physics. We just discovered the laws of physics, right? We discovered them and we gave them names. The one that created the laws of physics was God himself. And he created the bodies in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars, to obey God's law in the heavens. Do they obey that law? Perfectly. Perfectly. To the point that the heavens themselves are almost like a celestial clock. It's a, it's a clock that's perfectly wound, and it, it's accurate, if you will, right? So over and over again, the universe operates by the laws of physics, and, and, and again, they, they, they obey perfectly. And so because of that, in a sense, the heavens do what? They declare the glory of God because they're always obedient in fulfilling their purpose. Amen? Okay. All right, keep that in your mind. So God speaks to the heavens. And what he speaks to the heavens is that the heavens are constantly always obedient to the laws that God has put them under. And when they operate within those laws, you get to go out at night when you take your dogs to go pee. And you get to look up and you go, wow. And you get to have an experience with God because, see, they're fulfilling their purpose. They're they're doing what they're created to do. Are you with me? And then David moves on in verse 7. And he begins talking about something else. And the second part begins by talking about the law of God. And this time it's not the law of God for the heavens, what we might call the law of physics. This time it's the law that he's created for human beings. The law of Moses. And this time he talks about the law of God for man. Keep reading with me verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. 
They are more desirable than gold. Yes, even more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Okay. So here's the question. Just like last time, how does the law praise God? I think that the law praises God because it helps us to understand why God gave a law in the first place. It's what its purpose was. See, a lot of Christians tend to think that the Old Testament law was something that was negative and that was bad. Uh, I hear it all the time. I've been hearing it in churches for 20 years that... um, you know, that I remember one time having a conversation with a fellow at a church one time. This was years and years and years ago. And he got so upset with me because I said that after Paul became a, a Christian, he was still a Jew. He was still a Jew. He still worshipped at the temple when he was there. He, he uh, honored the Nazarite vow that was in, you know, when they were trying to fix things in Jerusalem because of the bad reputation that he had gained with some people. Um, but, but the point is, is that what a lot of people fail to understand is that that's not the biblical view of the law of God. The, the biblical view of the law of God is that God's law is his words to bring you life. They're not a burden. Um, the 613 commandments of God are not a burden. They're actually life. They're the path of life, according to the Old Testament. They're the path of peace according to the Old Testament. And it was already assumed that the problem where we get into is we have Martin Luther's thinking when it comes to the Old Testament law. With Martin Luther, we tend to think that the law was all about you trying to earn your salvation. Well, let me tell you something. If you were talking to the Jews in the first century about earning your salvation, none of them would agree with that. (laughs) None of them would agree with that. It was assumed that if you were a part of the nation of Israel, if you were born into that family, guess what? You're in, right? You are a part of God's people. If you are faith, if you have faith in the one true God, if you're seeking him by living out his word and his law, well, guess what? You are part of God's family. That was never not understood. In fact, that's what the problem the Pharisees had. The Pharisees leaned way too much on that fact. And they didn't have the faith, but they had, they had the ethnicity. The point that I'm trying to make is, guys, is that you were already a part of God's elect in the Old Testament. What was the purpose of God's law then? It wasn't to justify you. It was to show you once you were already a child of God how to live your life. Now that I'm saved, here's how you live. It's God's way of looking at the person who's, who's, who's waking up out of sin and coming to, 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 to walk with him. It's teaching this person how to walk with him and to live their life in such a way that they can be transformed to be like God. That's the purpose of the law. You might remember what Jesus said, in fact, in the New Testament, because his message sounded so different than the Pharisees, they believed that Jesus had come to abolish the law and the prophets. And what did Jesus say? I did not come to abolish them. I came to what? Fulfill them. And you know what that word means? Pleroo in the Greek. It means to fill up to the full. Basically, Jesus was just trying to show you how the law was supposed to be lived all along. You say, well, I'm not under the law. Well, I kind of want to be. You know why? Don't misunderstand me. (laughs) Theologically, I just made a really strong statement. But understand what I'm trying to say. Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I say unto you, don't even hate. I want to be that person. Amen? I want to be obedient to the law in the sense that I don't even want to hate anybody. I want to love my enemies. So, David had this to say about God's law in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. 
His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he he prospers. So basically, God said in the law, if you want to be my people, if you want to know how to live life, then come and obey the law of God. So the law then, from the very start, what's the purpose of the law? We think it was to be a burden and to earn something. No, the purpose of the law in the Old Testament was designed to give us an understanding of who God is. It was designed to give us an understanding of what God's expectations were. And it was to help reign in sin. Call it for what it is. Name the boundaries. This is what sin is. This is what sin is not. And in a sense, it kept, it was like a cage that helped rein it in until the time of Christ when he would set us free. Now, by the time of the New Testament, well, actually, I'm going to skip this part. I'm going to just skip over because I think I've gone over some of these things. Listen again to how David felt about the law and what it did for him. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. I'm reading this again because I want you to hear how they feel about the law here. Uh, the, the, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable desirable than gold, yes, more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. And in fact, when you turn to the Old Testament and you look at the men and women who actually followed the law and lived the law, man, think about the names you come up with. You know, Moses, Joshua, and and David, and, and Daniel. You know, Jesus, the the 12 disciples, they all followed the law and they all found righteousness. They found an ability to, to change their life through learning how to live out the commandments of God. And in the New Testament, we have the added benefit of the law being written where? On our hearts. So after David contemplates the greatness of God, what we find in short is that the law is intended to help man. And like creation, now watch this, it too, the law, reveals more about God and calls us as human beings to glorify Him. So the heavens, they obey the law of God, amen? They do exactly what God says, and because of that, they display God's glory. The law, it also accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish. If you submit yourself to God's law, then guess what? You will become a righteous person, according to David. And guess what? That too brings glory and honor and praise to God, right? That leaves one question. After David contemplates the greatness of God and how his creation adores him and praises him through obedience, and and after he contemplates about the law and all the wonderful benefits that come from it, and how the law itself, just by what it does, it praises and glorifies God by transforming human people, he finally contemplates one last thing. What about us? What about us? Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors. Acquit me of hidden faults and keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not rule over me. 
and then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, here's what I think is happening here. At the very last part of this psalm, I believe that what he realizes is that out of all creation, out of all the handiwork of God's hand, everything that has been made praises God. But at the same time, out of all of God's handiwork, who praises God the least? Man. We do. And so you have a great irony. You see, out of all creation, there's only one aspect of that entire creation that was given a choice to honor and praise God. Everything else in creation automatically praises God, right? The sun and the moon and the stars, they bring praise and glory and honor to the Father, but they don't have a choice. That's what they were created to do, right? Same way. So in all of creation, we are the closest thing to God on the earth. And because we've been given a choice, watch this, we have the greatest potential not only to honor God, but we also have the greatest potential to dishonor Him as well. The question is, what choice are we going to make? So the psalmist, after looking at all creation and all that God has done in the world and giving the law, he looks down into his own heart and he sees face to face what sin has done to him. How sin can rob the greatest of creations from the greatest honor and praise and glory. He cries out and he groans for his lost position like someone losing their child as their child's hand slips out from them in the midst of a crowd. He realizes his own sinfulness and he asks God to help him. He asks God to see into his heart and to forgive him. Even unintentional sins, even the sins that I don't know about God. He says, please forgive me with, with those as well. And he, he looks to God's law and he says, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want to see this law shape me. I want it to shape me and change me and, and mold me and, and transform me. And, and, if, and he says, like, like the sun's heat that permeates to the point that nothing is hidden. He says, so God's law finds every hidden part of man's life. And if you notice, the psalm does not end talking about the subject of avoiding sin David takes his understanding of glorifying God, I think, a little bit deeper than that. Instead of focusing on what not to do in terms of sin, he focuses on what he was created to do in terms of living a life that glorifies God. After seeing all of creation and the law bring the proper glory and praise to God, after seeing these things and, and, and seeing that they are doing what they were created to do, David then sees that it's only a proper response from a child of God to do the same. Would you agree? In other words, he says, God, let everything that I say, let everything that I think, let everything that I put my hand to do, may it bring you nothing but praise and honor and glory. And so, church, the, the question for us this morning as we close is, is how will we like creation, like the law, how will we now in Christ bring praise and honor and glory to our God and King? What does it really mean for us to live as sacrifices to God? 
What would it look like for us to walk out of this building today? In a sense, never ceasing to worship. But continually offering the sacrifices of our praise to Him. Not just in here, but out there. What would that look like? What would it look like if today, maybe you just took out a a piece of paper. I'm just going to recommend you do this. Take out a piece of paper. Not now, but maybe sometime when you get home. And write down five names. Five people that you can live a sacrificial life for. What would that look like? Um, What are some things that you need to do to be a living sacrifice? Maybe there's a sin that needs to be asked for forgiven for. Maybe there's a prayer that needs to be prayed. Um, Maybe there's something that you just needed to learn today and you're going to commit to just, just, just owning that, just, just, just keeping responsibility for that truth that, that God has placed into your, to your life this morning? Is there someone that you need to reconcile with? Just questions. How can we bring honor and praise and glory to God? Because the heavens don't have a choice. We do. What do you choose? What do you choose? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the blessing of this time. God, I pray that through this vessel, this broken and often messed up vessel, I pray that your words have come through. And I pray that you have spoken to hearts in this room things that needed to be heard. And God, as we look to Psalm 19, as we, as we look to the heavens to see what that message is, Father, I pray that the message rings loud and clear that all of creation was created to praise you and to give you glory and honor. And God, I pray that we, as the crown jewel of your creation, might bring you the most praise and honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, if you need to respond to the invitation, I'm going to ask uh, how many... How many elders do we have here this morning? Probably not many. We have one. Two. Okay. So, Brother Rick, if you would join me up here, uh, we're going to accept some prayers. If you want to come forward, if you need prayer for anything, or if you want to be baptized, this is your opportunity to do that. Alan, if you have time to come up here, you can. Uh, If not, then you're good. Okay? Come forward as we stand.